You're listening to CSUS Politics. Coming up next, an interview with Drew Seltzer, campaign staffer for Congressman Ro Khanna, and an in-depth discussion on polling and the reliability of polls. Then, in an hour, how to make the perfect pumpkin pie. Now, however, we go around the country for a breakdown of weekly events relating to the upcoming election. I'm Zach, reporting from Austin, Texas. Here and around the state, voting rates have been at an all-time high. Today, as more voters are turning up to vote in Texas, the race for control of the Lone Star State has been getting more intense. In fact, before today, there have been over 9 million early votes, already significantly higher than 2016's total voting population, in addition to 78% of Texas's population already being registered to vote. Of these registered voters, it is said that half of them are either new voters or infrequent voters, and that these registered voters make up 36% of Texas's votes. This seems to bode well for Trump, as in 2016, he also appealed to people who before had never voted or were never engaged in politics. On the other hand, of these new registered voters, it has also been found that 60% of them are under the age of 25 or people of color, demographics that usually sway to the left. As Biden looks to become the first Democratic candidate elected by Texas since Jimmy Carter, Trump has also been putting in work, hoping to retain control of this historically red state. It's certainly going to be an interesting race down here in Texas. I'm Ela, reporting live from Washington, D.C. Late on Monday, Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court by a deeply divided Senate. President Trump's nomination of Barrett to fill former Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat has been considered controversial because of both the proximity to the election as well as the now 6-3 to three conservative majority on the court. Republicans now don't just have a majority presence, but after Barrett became the first court nominee confirmed without a single vote from the Senate minority, Republicans now have a pretty complete dominance. Let's take a moment to look at some of the decisions that could be affected by this. In November, the Supreme Court will decide whether the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional, something that could cause over 20 million Americans to lose health care coverage. Abortion is another issue that could be affected, especially as Barrett has called Roe v. Wade barbaric. A decision that may happen more immediately, however, is regarding the 2020 election, which may tip one way or another based on a Supreme Court decision about mail-in ballots. Because more Democrats vote by mail-in than Republicans, deciding not to count these ballots might be instrumental in handing the election to President Trump. Next up, this is Mason coming to you live from Sacramento. Oftentimes, national headlines on the news about the Supreme Court and other events in Washington captivate our attention, while in reality, our local politics and statewide politics often have a much greater effect on our daily lives. Here in California, for example, voters must decide on a range of propositions. Everyone has their own ideas when it comes to voting for each proposition, but most people don't know exactly how the system works. Here are the basics. There are two types of propositions, initiatives, which are proposed laws or state amendments, and referendums, which are bills already passed by the state legislature that voters can approve or reject. Anyone can get either of these on the ballot. All you have to do is submit a proposed measure and gather signatures of at least 5% of all people who voted in the last statewide election. Then the proposition will be on the ballot for people to vote on. For each proposition, the majority vote wins. So make sure you go out and vote on each proposition, because it makes a very real impact on the outcome of California's laws. My name is Jackson, reporting from Columbia, South Carolina. Here, as in many states, 
the race for a Senate position is much more contentious than usual. Though South Carolina has been a Republican stronghold for decades, longtime Republican incumbent Lindsey Graham has faced the challenge of his political career in Democratic challenger Jamie Harrison, whose views on health care and the environment resonate with many South Carolina voters. Harrison, who has substantially outraised Graham in what has become the most expensive election in state history, has also frequently criticized Lindsey's apparent lack of reliability, as Senator Graham has radically changed his position on President Trump and on the fairness of swearing in a Supreme Court justice close to an election. Incumbent state Republicans in other states, such as Arizona, Colorado, and Iowa, are on the ropes as well, as many have struggled with how closely to associate with President Trump. In their bid to close the four-seat deficit and retake the Senate, the Democrats are also facing difficulties, particularly Doug Jones, who is struggling to hold on to a seat in Alabama, and Cal Cunningham, a challenger to a Senate seat in North Carolina whose campaign has been embroiled in scandal. Though all eyes will surely be fixated on the White House come November 3rd, remember to keep an eye on the race to control the Senate as well, which seems only to be tightening by the day. Next up, we have special guest Drew Settler, Assistant Campaign Manager for Congressman Ro Khanna, on the air with us. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So given that we're also running a mock election, how do you run a successful campaign? How do you get people to vote for you? And how do you know what constituents want to see? I think a big part of running a successful campaign is by forming a grassroots coalition uh, in the community that you're running in. Um, nowadays, most people want to see a candidate for office that has been attending these local activist meetings that's involved in the community um, and that has a presence and a connection with the community members so that they can actually listen to them and see what issues are affecting the community and uh, get their feedback. Do you ever see or do you see very often candidates kind of maybe giving up some of their values or changing their values to um, promote themselves to, to the people that they're trying to get the votes from? Yeah, um, I think that's natural in any race, but there's a difference between changing your position on an issue as the social fabric changes as well, like, um, you know, climate change, for example, right? More and more people actually acknowledge that it is true and it's happening and it's very real. And so what we're seeing now is more and more politicians that are, you know, acknowledging it and saying that it's actually a big part of it. Now, that being said, voters are smarter than most people think, and they can see through a candidate that's just trying to flip flop on a position solely for the intention of gaining a few votes. Awesome. Um, and then you, you briefly talked about like the presidential election. So kind of going off of that, um, both in the presidential election and then just in the various Senate races that have been especially close this year, are there any campaigns that you've been able to look at and say, wow, that's like a particularly well-run campaign. Like they're really doing a really good job. Like if, has anyone stuck out as like a really solid campaign on the national level this year? Um, I, I mean, apart from some of the more nationally recognized races, like South Carolina and Maine and all of those places. I would say the one statewide race that 
now is most impressive is the one happening in Alaska for the Senate seat. Um, there you have a Republican who's running against an independent that leans more Democratic, and it's now within the margin of error, which would have been unheard of, um, you know, just a year ago. You have a global pandemic, you have protests against racial injustice, you have climate change, um, and a majority of Americans across the political spectrum understand that these issues are very real and need to be addressed. Um, and so I think the candidates that are finding the most success are the candidates that are addressing these issues at the local level and are uh, addressing the you know, the sort of fears and anxieties that a lot of voters have. All right, thank you. Um, I guess kind of like going back on like campaigning, um, what's your opinion on fear-based campaigning? And do you think it's like effective or like, or maybe like better than positive campaigning in a way? Um, I think, I think it has been effective, um, but the consequence of that is that over the last four to five years, we've seen how much the divisiveness can get to us, uh, not just in the world of politics, but in our actions. Um, and so people are generally tired of that. They want a candidate that's focused on the issues, that's running to give them a better life tomorrow than they might have today. And most people can achieve that goal and can get good outreach with that message by running a positive campaign. Now, we saw in 2016 that a fear-based campaign won a big, uh, won the highest office. And I think that's because the message that uh, was run on in 2016 was that I'll give you a better life tomorrow than you have today by taking the country back to a time when things weren't so great for minorities or for women. Um, and people don't want to go back to that time. You know, there's a reason that we've moved on past that time. And they're generally just getting more tired of the divisiveness and the, the sort of back and forth. Um, and so I think the more successful campaigns that we're seeing are the campaigns that are running positive races. That being said, it's okay to you know, focus on your opponent's record or their policies. But I think making up lies and just saying, you know, if this person is elected, then you're not going to have electricity, you're not going to have clean water, things like that. I think people see you right through that because it's been happening for the past few years and they're just tired of it. Our main feature is a discussion about polling, how they work, what effects they have, and why they can be so inaccurate. And finally, what the polls mean for this election year and how they can be improved in the future. Let's begin with how polling works, because for anyone to make a judgment on how much a particular poll can be trusted, you need to understand how the data was collected. The fact is that there is no one way the polls are taken. According to Pew Research, some organizations collect their data over the telephone using live interviewers, Others take their polls online using opt-in panels, and there are other combinations of robocalling and online survey panels. Then that data is published as the results of the poll. 
Now, in the modern era, technology has opened the door for pretty much any organization to conduct their own polls using these methods with not very much money. These organizations, often which have no proven track record or credentials, have contributed in recent years to a landscape of inaccurate, fast, cheap polls. So before trusting a poll, make sure it comes from a reputable organization. And remember, in a close election, polls aren't always precise enough to accurately predict the outcome. In fact, for most polls, the margin of error is typically double the one reported. For example, many polls say that they have up to a 3% margin of error. In reality, um, that have a 5% margin of error or something that is even closer to 6%. Some of the factors that contribute to the polls inaccuracy include low response rates to polls and unequal coverage of the target population where not everyone has a chance to respond to the polls. Overall, polls are good guidelines for how people will vote, but they can't be trusted as perfect representations of the electorate. Now, what makes these polls so inaccurate? Well, according to the Pew Research Center, there are three main reasons. Non-response, coverage error, where not all the target population has a chance of being sampled, and mismeasurement. First, each polling organization has their own way of surveying people. As Mason already mentioned, organizations such as Fox and CBS News conduct their surveys in different ways. Because there's such a variation in the number of ways polls can be conducted, the actual quality of the data decreases. Second, more statistically accurate polls seem to ironically make them more inaccurate. Large sample sizes are usually a sign of precision, as they are more representative of the general population. But the problem is the method in which they acquire the sample size. They're usually formed through problematic and cheap sampling methods, thus decreasing the overall accuracy of the poll. Ultimately, a large sample size doesn't matter if they're all biased and unrepresentative. Last, the barriers to entry in the polling field have basically disappeared. Due to the rise in technology, almost anyone can enter the polling field easily. Since it's so easy to enter the polling field, fast and cheap polls have quickly overrun the field, and most of them have seemed to have one common error. They overrepresent college-educated students, most of whom voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 and will probably vote Democratic again this year. This is further seen through research done by Wired, stating that people in the polling industry have long recognized the challenge of accurately surveying so-called low-education households, where voters might have only a high school education or less. Now, the reason for this might be because these households with a high school education or less have faced economic disruptions that affect them more dramatically than others, forcing them to move around and so making it harder for polling organizations to poll them in general. Another reason might be because it's been found that these households also traditionally have a higher mistrust of institutions, so they are also unlikely to respond to polling organizations at all. And these people that don't respond to the polls seem to have a common trend, according to CNBC. In 2016, Trump appealed mostly to these voters with lower levels of education, who again were underrepresented in polls. And so, during actual election days, these unaccounted for voters were able to swing the tide in favor of Trump, despite original polls saying that Clinton would win. Chances are, we'll see these underrepresented, unpolled voters play a part in the election once again. Another interesting layer to consider is the impact of polls on voters. According to Pew Research Center, when a candidate is heavily favored by polls, voters supporting that candidate are actually less likely to vote, believing that the win has already been sealed. This is believed to be part of the reason for the inaccurate polling predictions in the 2016 election, in which Hillary Clinton was shown to be ahead by many leading polls. Trust in the polls ironically made them less trustworthy, as the Republican base rallied to vote in a stronger force than Democrats in crucial states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, both of which were considered firm, lean Democrat states. This year, polls seem to be having the opposite effect. 
Both parties, but especially the Democrats, who are again being favored by polls, have been continuing to urge their voters to ignore the polls and vote en masse, setting 2016 as a scenario that they never want to repeat again. According to the American Association for Public Opinion Research, polls actually weren't too far off on the nationwide popular vote, which Clinton won by 2.1 percentage points, but their coverage of state-level races were quite spotty, which is obviously problematic in a country that uses the Electoral College. Additionally, President Trump has proven to be exceptionally hard to poll for. According to Pew Research Center, President Trump won many districts he wasn't projected to, because those districts often leaned more to the left on policy. However, in the case of Trump specifically, his campaign was built less on policy and more on personality, which caused him to sway many potential fringe Democrats, who were willing to give up their beliefs in certain principles in favor of his bombastic outsider attitude. Trump's intangible ability to inspire and mobilize with his attitude and personality was very difficult for polls to predict and perceive. In all, Though it seems like polls are still somewhat reliable, given the amount of fake and inaccurate polls out there, as Zach discussed earlier, plus the ability of poll numbers to cause voter complacency and the hard-to-gauge Trump campaign, make sure to get out and cast your vote, regardless of what local polls may say. While Jackson makes fair points, there are a few reasons polling might be more accurate this year. Because of the failure of polls in the 2016 election, pollsters have needed to reevaluate a few key assumptions. Firstly, many assumed that undecided voters would split evenly between Trump and Clinton, when, in fact, the majority of them voted for Trump. How can we be sure that this doesn't happen again in 2020? Well, for starters, we have next to no undecided voters, as the latest polling has the number unsure about their vote at about 6%. Secondly, undecided voters exist in demographics um, such as Latino and African-American populations who are much less likely to vote for Trump. Another failed assumption was that polls within the margin of error were still reliable. In 2016, Trump trailed Clinton a mere error margin away in most battleground states. However, in 2020, in the swing states that matter, Biden is polling with a much clearer lead over Trump a lead that has only grown in recent weeks. According to October 12th polling, only eight swing states are within the margin of error for Trump, and even if Trump won all of them, he would still be behind Biden in the Electoral College votes. Therefore, Trump is no longer an error margin away from winning the presidency. All this considered, while the idiosyncrasies of polling still leave plenty of room for inaccuracy, I think we can expect to see more reliable polling for the 2020 election. All this considered, how do we make polls more accurate? In the future, polls should be conducted much more frequently to ensure greater accuracy and precision. Additionally, while polls have been previously considering factors like income and age, we saw in 2016 a huge correlation between education and voting. So weighting educational attainment in addition to other demographic factors like race could also help increase polling's accuracy. Finally, putting a larger factor on states and their roles within the Electoral College would also be a good step towards more reliable polls. While we have a long way to go to achieving perfectly realistic election models and polls, we've learned a lot since 2016, and I'm confident that the future of polling looks bright.